Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. I am really, really, really excited about this one. Do you know why, Dan? No, I don't, because... Because I don't know what I'm getting into here. I don't know. I don't know exactly what we're getting into because yesterday I was sitting down with Reed, our marketing guy, and we're brainstorming podcast episode ideas. And we came up with the idea of doing weird real estate niches. Niches. I say niche. You say niche. I say niche. Gosh, you're so fancy. Yeah, and I really lean into the e. It's like a long e, like niche. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Makes I think people it uncomfortable. Feels good. <laughs> but um, so I told him, okay, you go and you find five really weird real estate niches and we'll talk about them on the air. And I haven't really, really looked at these yet, but just glancing at this sheet of niches that he has provided, it's going to be a, it's going to be fun. Yeah. We're going to talk about some things that I have never talked about on air. And um, once again, we are probably not qualified to talk about these things. We're going to talk about them, but we're yeah. not going to say anything that you should, um, base any of your investment decisions on per usual 100% no per usual. but we're going to talk about some things that maybe you've never considered when it comes to real estate I, I'm familiar with actually all of these now that I think about it so this is going to be fun I'm excited it's been a long time it's, it's been a long time since I was like truly excited about a podcast episode because we've done like th- almost 400 episodes that's too many and it's too many and it's not often that we come up with like a brand new spanking idea to talk about mm-hmm. and this is already different so how about us? By the way, how you been? How what? How you, how you been? Good. You know? Good. Just got done. Uh, I might smell like a campfire. Just did a walkthrough at our building that oh, had yeah. its second fire, which I think we've done an episode We did about. an episode on that. Yeah. Hell yeah. week. If you guys don't remember, go listen to that episode. We had a fire on the same building six months, in the same six months, four months, five four months. months. Yeah. yeah, it was really quick. But yeah, that smell kind of gets stuck in your nostrils for a while. After That's not a campfire smell either. That's no, like very chemical. No, campfire with like plastic mixed in yeah burning plastic and other materials that typically you don't want burning but you don't want to breathe those particulates no okay. probably a lot of asbestos too but you're uh, here now you're in a safe place for now yeah this room is not flammable well you know i i could argue that <laughs> <laughs> all right let's talk about some well actually do you got some bad investing advice uh yeah okay yeah okay, um, hit, me. Hit, me, hit me with your, with your best yeah, shot it's, it's best if uh your buildings don't burn um that's pretty good advice. <laughs> yeah, just try to keep your building from not burning, and you're going to be doing pretty good. All right. Um, to be a successful investor, you should try to do as many good deals slash investments as possible. Okay, the quantity over quality approach. No. It's kind of quantity and quality. Right. Do a lot of good deals. Do all the good deals. Do them all. Right? Uh, no. The- okay, no. <laughs> I meant. <laughs> uh, no, what were you going to say? Well, no, you you go ahead because I um, I will I will speak after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're gonna need to start to embrace no at some point in your life. We've kind of talked about this, um, in the past with just like being you know uh, really careful with how you invest your time and things like that. But 
this one I'm kind of stealing from from Hermosi because he was talking about a similar concept. I thought it was very kind of apropos for uh, what we're doing right now. We've got a lot of really good, exciting stuff coming on the pipeline right now. And I know for a fact that there are going to be other good opportunities coming up in the next 12, 24 months that we're just going to have to say no to because they could be a distraction from the core thing. Yeah. And uh, he was talking, Hermosa was talking more about like, you know, business opportunities, not necessarily investments per se, but it really relates to just about everything. And, and, you know, you can take this concept all the way up to like, you know, the Bezos's and the Musk's, you know, they, they're going to have things that come across their desk that are, you know, life changing for people. But for them, you know, they've got to say no because they've got, I mean, Musk doesn't say no. Honestly, he just does everything. He just says yes to everything. <laughs> Most people, if you're, unless you're Elon Musk, you're going to have to say no to even really good things if they could potentially distract you from whatever your core focus ought to be. 100%. I think I'm reading a book right now about Andrew Carnegie, who is famous for saying you should put all your eggs in the same basket and then watch that basket. Yeah. And one of the really interesting <laughs> things about this guy is at a certain point in his life, he realized that everything that wasn't manufacturing steel was a distraction to, to his life and his business and what he was trying to grow. And he said, you can't, no perennial um, business has ever been built by somebody who split their focus. Yep. And Elon might be the exception, but um, it was, so what he did when he made this realization is he liquidated all of his other businesses and he had a lot and he was doing successful, uh, great stuff there, he liquidated all his stocks and he just put everything back into his business and he said no to every other opportunity. It takes a great amount of discipline and willpower to do that. It's hard. Hermosi was kind of comparing it to uh, <clears throat> the uh, the woman in the red dress from The Matrix. Yeah. Right? It gets really hard to say no to really, really, really shiny objects, especially when they're like obviously really good. But yeah, that's the that's the most interesting thing about what Hormozy talks about, and when you're talking about the lady in the red dress, which is like she gets hotter over time. Yeah. So like initially you have to, when you're first starting out and you're trying to go from zero, say to a hundred thousand, maybe let's say zero to 10,000, you have to say no to other $10,000 opportunities. And that's one level of, of no that you have to master. But then once you get there and you're making the jump to a hundred thousand, you now have to be, you have to relearn the skill of saying no to hundred thousand dollar offers. And maybe that's easy, yeah. but at a certain point, that offer gets really, really sexy. Now it's a million or $5 million offer or potentially a billion dollar offer that you have to be able to say no to because it's distracting you from the more important thing, yeah. which is the, the, the primary focus of your business or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have to struggle with that one because already we're seeing opportunities come across our, our desk that would be very easy to run at and get distracted by mm -hmm. with the idea of like, ooh, gobble, 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 gobble. And what, one, of the thing, one of the people that we're gonna talk about today in these five weird real estate niches is a guy named Zeckendorf. Mm -hmm who used some really interesting strategies to acquire real estate that I'm really, I think are cool to talk about. But um, he is a case study of a guy who never saw a deal that he couldn't say yes to. And as a result, like blew up in a fantastic. I think you mean no. He never saw a deal they couldn't say no to. He never saw a deal. He yeah, he, he said yes to every deal. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. just could not say no to a deal. And yeah, I still haven't read that book. It, it worked until it didn't and he blew up in Part, uh, spectacular fashion. Okay, so let's go into five weird real estate niches. What, this first one is air rights. Do you want to you want to explain this one to to our listeners and to me? Sure. Um, so air rights are something that probably only come into play in densely populated urban areas, and I think New York is probably one of the examples that 
um, people can relate to uh, or, or can can help you understand this because obviously there's there's all the land in Manhattan is being 100% utilized. And so really, if you're going to be building anything new and you want to go bigger than what was there before, there's only one way to go, which is up. But in New York and other places like that, you've got these things called air rights, which restrict how high certain buildings can be in certain areas. But um, almost like the whole carbon credit thing works where, you know, you can trade credit for carbon emissions, you know, if people are kind of familiar with that concept, it's kind of like that with air rights where there might be a building down the block that has, you know, air rights for a certain amount of space above their building that they're never going to use. They could uh, turn around and sell those to another party down the street that allows them to build higher than they normally would have been able to on their on their footprint. So you can add massive value to a property if you can execute this uh, correctly. One of the one of the more common examples of this or not common, but one of the better known examples of this is the uh, the Trump thing he did with the Tiffany building in New York. So if anyone's ever read that um, uh, Art of the Deal book, um, there's a big section in there about that. And it, it could, you know, make or break a, a deal in a place like New York. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting, um, but also um, probably not that easy, if I had to guess. Yeah, it, you're going to be limited by your location for sure. Yeah. You need to be in an area that <laughs> this even comes into the equation, and you're probably going to be dealing with some pretty big commercial um, buildings worth a lot of money. Maybe, maybe you somehow found a building like a little single family home. I don't know in the midst of a downtown area that's booming, but this one's a hard one to make work. But if you're in that bigger space, like this is really interesting, which is going to tie into another concept that we're going to talk about here in a second, um, which is listed here on the sheet, just Zeckendorf because <laughs> actually I'll just jump straight into this one. The second weird real estate niche Zeckendorf who is known as the guy who played uh, real life Monopoly and almost won. He had the largest real estate portfolio um, in American history and then crashed and burned in spectacular fashion. But what makes him really interesting is when he would syndicate a deal, he wouldn't just look and try to syndicate the building and like say, this is the, this is the asset, everything, right? What he realized was that the, the parts were worth more than the whole. So he would say, well, I can syndicate the building. And I can syndicate the land under the building Mm -hmm. and I can syndicate the air rights. Mm -hmm. And so he would buy this building, let's say for 2 million and then recognize, oh, I can raise capital for my syndicate and you are just investing in the building Mm -hmm. and you guys are investing in the air rights and you guys are investing in the land rights. And as a result, he could take that $2 million acquisition and turn it into 8 million. And it was just a really interesting example of, you know, air rights being part of that, the land being part of that and just saying there's more uses here than just what you see. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And, and uh, was he mostly operating in New York, or was he? He was worldwide, but I think um, most uh, hunt, like eighty percent of his portfolio was New York. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's another kind of interesting nuance with like New York and places like that. It's it's not uncommon at all that if you're going to go buy a large property in Manhattan, that you don't have the option to own the land. Like you're going to be locked into leasing that land from somebody else, maybe the city, whatever. Um, a lot of that stuff is is really common there. So the land is very much separate from the building. We've never seen anything like that in Not here. our area. The only way you'd see that is on your appraisal from your tax assessor. There's a land value and a building value, but they're always one thing as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's it's really interesting, but I think it's it's a good way to do it because like we saw um, with that, uh, you know, Tiffany building thing, like that could be a multi-phase project, right? Mm-hmm. And so the air rights are, could very easily be their own thing and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and, and um, I can't remember if it's the Empire State Building in particular 
but the we talked about how they're on a master lease, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But I believe if, if I'm not mistaken, the land is actually owned by somebody else other than the the building yeah. owner directly. So yeah. this is an example of somebody who owns the land. It's fascinating that you can own the land under a building and you have two different owners with some sort of rights to this thing mm-hmm. that you would otherwise consider just to be a singular entity, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, man. Um, that's an expensive lease just for the dirt that you're sitting on. Like that's, and you're, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way it is there. If you could choose. I want to be the land guy. I was going to say, yeah. would you be the land guy or would you be the building guy? I'm, I'm taking the land 100% yeah. of the time because that's free money. That's effectively free money. What are you, what are you going to fix? Do you have a plumbing issue in your dirt? No. You, don't, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you don't have to do it. I, I might be wrong about that. You maybe yeah, have to do something. Yeah, there might be a lot there. But it seems like at the end of the day, that's really the dirt is going to be like the location. Yeah. Right? The buildings will come and go, but that location is forever. You own that thing, you're, you're sitting pretty good. Especially if you're in a market like New York City where you're probably always going to be in demand. Now, if you own a chunk of Minneapolis downtown land, you're probably, it's probably always going to be worth something, but I don't know. Okay, next one. Doomsday luxury bunkers. Hmm. So do you know anything about this, this world? I mean, I know that there's like those, um, uh, what do you call them, like preppers who get all into preparing for zombie apocalypses and nuclear wars, things like that. I was not aware that the luxury bunker niche existed yeah but i at the same time i'm, I'm not surprised so did this, this exist for three four years ago yeah or is this like a post this is this like, has been around for a while really yeah this world this is actually more prevalent than a lot of people realize is that a lot of really ultra wealthy people kind of have their doomsday bunkers this came onto my radar hurt. yeah this came onto my radar two years ago pandemic elevated this but in particular because sam altman the ceo of OpenAI, mm-hmm. he during 2020, oh, actually pre-2020, this would have been like 2018, 2019, he saw the potential for a pandemic-level event and the effect that that could have worldwide. And he he tweeted about this, he shared about this, he's like, this is a potential problem. He did not know about COVID, this was pre-COVID. So he was just saying like, listen, given our current uh, medical system and the way the world's connected, this could be a very big issue. He actually went and bought an island and then bought and created his own little safety compound. And he, always, he has a, like a helicopter that's always ready to go. So when 2020 hit, he just went to his compound. And I guess he, he's not the only one who is investing in this. Like a lot of these rich guys do this. So luxury bunkers, like who knew? This says that they, um, this company that Reed pulled, Texas-based Rising S Company, says their 2016 sales for custom high-end underground bunkers grew 700% compared to 2015. Uh, that was just 2016 to 2015. This isn't even talking about 2020 or post-2020. So I got to imagine those numbers just kept spiking. Yeah. I mean, I guess do these guys show up with like a... Do they build it? Do they bring it like pre-built and just prefabbed? Throw it in a hole in the ground. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole in this. This is interesting. I bet for a luxury bunker, they're coming in, working with an architecture firm, or maybe yeah. they have that inside, and then they go build it custom. Would be my guess. Because if you're talking about like, I don't know, Sam Altman's buying an island, and his compound's probably twenty-ish, thirty million. It doesn't sound cheap. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't guess. sound prefabbed. Because if you're going to be worth that much, and you're thinking I'm going to be living in this bunker maybe for a year or two. You're gonna want kind of a bougie bunker. Honestly, <laughs> islands aren't that expensive, dude. I was when I went to the Sorry. Bahamas last year. Our driver was telling us all sorts of stories, and I want to say it was like Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. 
bought one of the islands close by to where we were. Aren't they very, very wealthy? They are, okay. but he told me how much it costs. Oh. Uh, and it was like two million bucks. I don't know where Sam's is. I think it's off the coast of California. I'd have to assume because he lives in California yeah. year round. So I don't know. But let's let's look into this for Invictus Capital. They're not expensive bunkers. What's expensive is getting load. the infrastructure, the plumbing, electric. That's Public. expensive. But like the actual Just the land, like you can actually pick up an island for less than a lot of the buildings we buy. It's pretty crazy. The the infrastructure of getting to it would probably be very difficult too. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you if you're pretty close, you can get there on a dinghy. But <laughs> hey, man, if I'm buying an island, I'm not going there on a dinghy. I'm I'm coming in on my my luxury jet. Okay, well, that's going to cost a lot more than that. Let's yeah, keep it. Okay. Going. Okay, number four on this <laughs> list. Uh, you want to you want to kick this one into high gear? Data centers. Data. Yeah, I think most people know what a data center is, but mm-hmm. real quick, in case you don't, uh, it's basically. Uh, a structure that just houses uh, computer servers for whatever. It could be, um, you know, for cloud-based storage. It could be um, crypto holdings. It could be any number of things. But it's basically just a big building filled with computers that is going to be more and more needed as technology advances. Like, this is only going to be something that's that's needed more of. And I think it's a really, really interesting model. Um I don't think it's quite as simple as it might seem. It's not like you just buy a building, you shove no. some computers in there because um, a lot of the stuff, uh, depending on the amount of um, um, uh, output or the amount of, uh, and I'm really not a techie, so I'm going to struggle with the verbiage here, but depending on how much action is actually going on there, how much, um, how many servers there are, it might only make sense to build these things in like really cold environments, right? Mm. And you're probably going to need a lot of space. And when you start getting into some of this more sensitive stuff like crypto holding, things like that, it's got to be like ultra secret. Like effectively, like some of these things need to be like bunkers. So yeah, you can't I, just buy like a, a vacant office building if that's what you're thinking. You can't throw that. a bunch of computers in there and call it a day. It's got to be temperature controlled. It's got to be secure. And depending on the data that's there, it might need to be really secure. And, and for these to really function, the scale is very large. Yeah. Like... You, you want to get the economies of scale. So these things are very, 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 very big in a lot of cases. This one that they're talking about, Cloud HQ, they're building a billion-dollar data center. I don't know how much of that's building and land and like what, what versus what's going into the building. Chaska. That's it's up, up in Chaska. And what's interesting about these, I didn't realize how prevalent they are um, because you drive by them and typically they just look like a gigantic building. Yeah, it just and, looks like an industrial building. or Yeah, totally, totally nondescript, yeah. but... It's a very sticky business because there's only so much inventory out there. It kind of has to be located in some prime locations. And one of the interesting things that Reed notes here is that as a, a real estate investor that's maybe wanted to get into this, you know, the safest way is to go buy the land and then, you know, bring in the development crew because you just go and build the building, but you don't have the company lined up that's going to come in with their server farms. That, that can be pretty risky. So yeah. it's kind of like a two-prong attack. Like mm. it's like uh, office space but for a very particular clientele. And there's probably, uh, I'd say worldwide, only so many options of people that you can probably put into your server farm. So you're waiting until you have that contract probably to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the um, um, the most logical direction to go with this, and again, I know nothing about this space, but I feel like you'd probably just want to try to get Amazon as your customer, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the easiest thing? Shove Always, in like yeah. AWS and but I don't know. Does Amazon own their data centers or do they lease? Um, I have no idea. That's a good question. Knowing Amazon's model, it seems like they rent a lot of the distribution centers mm-hmm. rather than owning them. 
and which makes sense from a capital outlay rather yeah. than tying it up in the building, just take the lease. So maybe that's what they do with their data centers too. But that's an interesting one. You'd want to be, you kind of need to be niched down in that, into that, that world. Yeah. You need to probably have some insider information about how that world works and like the different players. You probably want to come from a tech background is what I'm saying. Yeah. Per usual, you're going to need some relationships. You can't just pull up, uh, pull up loop net, try to throw something together willy nilly. However, this last one, you don't need to know anything and you could probably make this one work. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a slight twist to this. I want to say the stat on top is not accurate. Or a lot of these people are lying. <laughs> it, so, all these people are going to go out on our... All right, let's, let's read it. Okay, so, so number, number five is luxury RV parks. Now, the, the stat that Dan is, is uh, very frustrated stressed with. It yeah. uh, says 61% of Americans report they are planning a road trip or vacation in an RV in 2023. Now, what's interesting about luxury RV parks is in 2020, there was a massive spike in RV sales because everybody was locked at home. They needed space. They wanted to go on road trips. And so RV sales went through the roof. But the inventory of RV parks, specifically luxury RV parks, did not increase at a rate that was commensurate. And so there's like this lack of inventory for how much supply there was. There's all these RVs and not enough places for them to park. And so not just RV parks, but the more interesting thing here is RV storage. And I have I know a couple of players who are out there just building RV storage facilities where you park your RV year round and then when you want to go and ride it you pull it out and you take it for a joyride. In the meantime they do the maintenance, they take they they wash it, they they take care of it and the outlay as the the real estate owner is very very low. You're pretty much just building sunroofs over these um, over a parking lot and you can maybe put some solar panels on top of it and then power the, the facility from that. I find it really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to work everywhere, mm-hmm. especially like if you're in the Midwest or in like some lower population areas, it's not going to work. So you're going to want to be where the bouge is. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you're out there in the bouge, bouge lands, you could do well. Yeah, it's interesting that the the spike from the pandemic is kind of creating this. It makes me concerned about the the longevity of that trend because mm-hmm. every other spike that we saw from that period has come back down to where it was before. So just because we saw a, a decrease in RV parks and storage when everyone went crazy with them, like if everyone goes out and builds all the stuff, like I don't. I think there's probably going to be some occupancy issues because I don't think people are going to keep doing that like they did for that short period of time. Yeah, I agree with that. The plus side is to develop an RV park, you really just need to have some like power, some sewage, some water hookups, and then some pads, right? Like, but what makes it luxury? Um, I think that has to do with some of the amenities, is it like a velvet maybe, rope. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like stay out of my, my <laughs> RV park. Probably it has something to do with the amenities around like a pool or like a clubhouse. I don't know. Um, so in my mind, I'm thinking about this in two different ways. One is the park that you go to on your trip, but then the other is the storage. And the storage, yeah. I think, if you built it in the right place, um, even with other competition, I think you'd be okay. Because while people might not use their RV as much as they think they will, right? Like the 2020, 2021, they're probably at their peak. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's go on an RV trip. In the future, they, just, they go on less and less. They still need somewhere to park it. Or they could sell it. 
But then that doesn't change the inventory. Somebody else has it now, and they probably need a place to store it too. In RVs, oh. in bougie areas, you're not allowed to have your RV in your driveway. Like this is actually against a lot of HOAs and a lot of like city regulations because it's, I don't know, they're really heavy. They can do damage and they're eyesores. Yeah, kind of like Cousin Eddie from um, Christmas Vacation. God damn it, Eddie. Uh, no. You haven't seen that? Christmas Vacation is that um, oh, it's one of Chevy those, Chase? Yeah, one of those guys. I love Terry Chase. It's a good. It's that's probably the the, the best one. If you ask me. But anyways, back yeah. on topic. Um, I do not plan to go on an RV trip. I do not plan to own an RV, and I just am so surprised that sixty one percent of people claim that they're going on a tr- RV trip this year. Yeah, I'm gonna need to fact check that. They didn't ask me. That's a lot. They're like sixty one percent of Americans we talk to. In the um, RV store. And they went into the RV store. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like exactly that would right. make sense. All right. Uh, was that all of them? That's all five. Wow. That's five, that's five that's weird real estate niches. That's real estate. Yeah, there's five of them. Okay. And then there's some pretty interesting ones in here. I'll be honest. Like yeah. the luxury bunkers, the, the air rights kind of combined with land rights. I find that one just super compelling. Not that we're, we're going to be able to really do anything with that information. Um, well, I thought we were doing going after shiny objects this year. Wasn't that... Yeah, that was my that's, take that is the takeaway <laughs> is Try we need to get into data centers. That's that's where the money's all at. These things. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious about I'm going to go down a, a luxury bunker rabbit hole on YouTube because I kind of want to see. You don't, you don't you go to the garage in bunker situations. But that's not luxury. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you're not going to be able to put a bunker under there. Well, it doesn't need to be right next to my condo. It, it kind of does. It could be out you in need to be able to, It's like a panic center. room. You got to get there quick. Maybe. What if it's a... No, whatever. Let's anyway. let's wrap this up. Okay, Maybe so books. book recommendation. I've talked about this one on a previous episode, but I'm going to bring it up again because it's just so apropos. The book Zeckendorf, the autobiography of a guy named Zeckendorf. It's a fascinating real estate book. Really highly recommend it. It's only 280-ish pages. It's actually relatively short for a biography. Actually, it's autobiography. He wrote it about himself. So go check it out. It's really, really, really interesting. And... That's going to do it for us, guys, um, and all three gals. We appreciate you being here. I th- I'm guessing we skew very male in our audience. I don't know that for sure. If know. there's any ladies out there, get out onto the dance floor and leave a review on Apple. That's all I ask. And that's all I got for you guys. So we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.